Welcome to the uh, Moving Port Podcast. This is your uh, host, Corey Cottrell. And of course, we have my uh, co-host, Rio Verdenier. Hey, guys. Uh, and today, we got a super special guest uh, on the show today. Somebody I have uh, talked to before about uh, automation and artificial intelligence. Um, I am going to, I have to admit, fanboy out uh, a little bit in this episode. It's just, it, it happens every single time I talk to this guy. Uh, so we're going to be talking to uh, Nicola Denilov, who is the host of the Singularity Podcast. You can find it at singularity.fm. Um, he has been talking to uh, basically scientists, writers, entrepreneurs, filmmakers, philosophers, uh, and uh, other people around the technological singularity. Uh, it's about the fact that uh, that advance of technology is itself accelerating and it's going uh, 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 you know into transhumanism, artificial intelligence, even life extension. Uh, and he actually has uh, chats with ethicists as well, which I think is really, really important. Uh, past guests of his have included people like Ray Kurzweil, uh, Peter Diamandis, who uh, started the XPRIZE, uh, Noam Chomsky, Aubrey de Grey, who is trying to make people immortal, uh, Michio Kaku. Uh, and I think even recently you had uh, 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 the Ethereum guy on, uh, Vitalik, is that what his name is? Oh, Vitalik Buterin? Buterin, yeah. I did actually the first interview with him ever, I think. That was done six, eight, nine months, maybe before Ethereum actually launched. Oh, shit. So it's now become a classic. Oh. I had to go pick him up from the lab, do the interview, and then bring him back straight to the lab. Vitalik was basically sleeping in the lab. I think he had a sleeping bag there. And I was like, hey, man, do you want me to get you like a pizza or something? <laughs> He's like, no, I'm good. I'm good. Just drop me off. Drop me off back where you got me, and that's what I did. It was crazy. Wow. Was like, this kid is gonna go places. Yeah, and uh, yeah, he did. Ethereum's uh, a little bit of a big deal now. Um, so yeah, I wanted to have you on. You know, it, it's it's a little selfish, frankly. I, I wanted to have you on to, to to catch up, even from from our last conversation a few years ago about uh, AI and automation. Uh, but now, you know, as as people who are you know part of the Yang Gang, people are t- talking about uh, the moving forward platform. We talk about automation a lot. We talk about AI a lot. People are starting to understand it, but I still think that people are sleeping on how massive this change is going to be. Uh, so I wanted to, to just use this opportunity to catch up with you about uh, you know, some of the people you've been talking to uh, and, uh, and, and talk about those topics because I think just a little bit more context on those things is going to be really valuable for people. Well, great. I'm happy to be here. So if you guys have any questions, go for it. So what uh, has anything struck out to you over the last three years, because again, we talk about uh, uh, the advance of AI, the advance of automation. Um, you know, what, if anything, has changed about your perception of these things over the last three years? Well, so one of the things that's changed is that perhaps the most fundamental change has been the fact that, you know, People say, look, technology is going to do great things. But the reality is technology does not want to do great things. Technology doesn't have any agency. So technology may do great things. It may do terrible things. Whatever the case may be, it depends on us. It depends on people. Technology doesn't want to do anything. And so whether it would be good or bad, it depends on us. But it's not going to be positive or good by default. And it's not going to be positive and good if you just keep going the way we have been going. And I think I I got sort of very aware of that fact in the last uh, several years, Uh, not only around the Cambridge Analytica uh, sort of revelations, uh, which by the way, the the parent company 
of uh, Cambridge Analytica is a UK defense contractor. And basically they, they do psyops, mind control kind of propaganda operations around the world, usually in support of uh, friendly troops, but quite often for hire to the highest bidder. And so when those things were for export, for example, they were considered as weapons and they had to be declared. Uh, in other words, that parent company had to declare who it's doing business with. But uh, in contrast to that, Cambridge Analytica didn't have to do, to, to basically didn't have to, to share information with anyone about what it was doing and where it was doing it and to whom it was doing it, even though it was doing stuff in the UK and in the US and in Canada and all over Europe, right? Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, and then when you add to all those things, uh, you know, everything that's been going on with YouTube. So for example, right now I'm working on an article called uh, Smart Engineers and Stupid Algorithms. And basically I was confronted with the fact that, you know, YouTube has been profiting from terrorists and people who behead other people or burn them alive from people who claim that the earth is flat. And yet it kind of told me that four of my latest videos were not eligible to most of its advertisers for some reasons. And those were interviews with Cory Doctorow, with Douglas Rushkoff, with uh, Kathy O'Neill, and, and like highly intellectual, highly specialized expert uh, interviews, entirely original, no uh, plagiarism of any kind whatsoever, with people who are some of the forefront intellectuals of our time, very highly technical, skilled, and, and respected people. And yet my content seemed to be unappealing to most of their advertisers. And yet all those other people were allowed for years and years and years to share their content all over the place. Yeah. Right. So you don't have enough flat earthers on, I think is what the algorithm is trying to tell you. <laughs> Basically you have some of the <laughs> smartest people in the world yeah. creating some of the dumbest algorithms possible. Yeah. It seems, well, yeah. When you start outsourcing to, to, uh, to algorithms, you're, you're gonna, you're gonna have mistakes and you would, you would hope that they would be able to fit those algorithms better with sort of an, uh, uh, uh what they, you know, if you ask them what they might consider to be sort of an ideal set of, uh, of content. But yeah, right now there's just, there's, there doesn't seem to be much, seem to be much of a, a useful correlation at all. But that's part of the problem. And my last interview was with Kathy O'Neill uh, on a fantastic book that she uh, wrote uh, called Weapons of Math Destruction. And it talks a lot about uh, YouTube and Facebook and all those other algorithmic uh, sort of platforms. And the reason why they're weapons of math destruction is because one, they're secret, okay? So I have no idea about why my four YouTube videos were kind of deranked and delisted. And YouTube only gives you some very vague uh, sort of general outlines, like you talk about violence uh, and drugs and all kinds of things like that. And I talk about neither of those things at all in my videos. Okay. I'm not talking about drugs or violence or any of that sort, right? And yet somehow my videos fall within those secret kind of rules. So one, the rules are secret. Two, 
I don't have any recourse, really. It's an algorithm that decided uh, my videos are no good. I can sort of appeal a little bit, but it's all secret. It's like a secret court. And I don't know the evidence held against me. I don't know how I can change or improve anything. In other words, basically, it's all secret. The reason why they're also weapons of mass destruction is because they're mass, they're massive. We're talking about billions upon billions of videos, right? Yep. Yep. And finally, the third reason is that somebody else decides what success looks like or what uh, the rules are. And it's not me, it's about my video and it's about my content, but they decide if it's good or if it's bad. So they dis decide to put a kind of a censorship on it, if you will. Yep. Which is secret. So I have no idea why my videos are being censored in a bit because here's what happens next too. If a video is not um, appropriate for some of their advertisers, then what happens is they're actually downranking down me because they have an incentive to promote a video that's appropriate for their so-called advertisers so right. they can make money out of it. And so they promote that video and they downright my, my video, which is effectively censorship. And we're talking about highly intellectual discourse, which talks about the most permanent issues of our time, like artificial intelligence, genetics, robotics, nanotech, synthetic biology, 3D printing, human enhancement, transhumanism, technological unemployment, you know, ethics, you name it, right? Yep. And yet, so, and even with Douglas Rushkoff, we talked about YouTube algorithms and stuff like that. With Kathy O'Neill, we talk, talk about weapons of mass destruction. And I find that particularly, particularly ironic. So it's like, it looks like censorship to me. Yeah. Well, not, sorry, Rio, go ahead. I was just going to ask, do you think it might be because YouTube doesn't want you talking negatively about their algorithms? <laughs> that was exactly what I was going to say. Okay, so, so let's say me talking negatively about the algorithms, which is a very, very important issue, is something they don't want me to talk about or they have a problem with. Clearly, they don't have a problem with flat earthers. Right. Clearly, they didn't have a problem with all the terrorist videos of people being beheaded on YouTube or some in some cases being burned alive. Clearly, they didn't have any problems with people selling all kinds of conspiracy theories and aliens and all kinds of ghost stories and bullshit. And yet, <laughs> my videos are inappropriate. And I don't know what exactly is the problem with them. I have no recourse. And basically, I'm just like out of the, the engine. <laughs> I think it's because they're motivated by making money. I mean, really, that's kind of... I, <laughs> there's a lot of, a lot of um, really low-quality content on YouTube. Um, and I, I mean, I mean low-quality, low as, as you said, isn't just... There's really no um, social value to it. If anything, it's doing harm. But the there world. is a social value and you named it. That's the value of making money. And that's because, that's as right. I said, one of the rules of weapons of mass destruction is that somebody else decides what success looks like. And their measure of success is clickbait. How many people clicked on an ad, right? And so, for example, if you are a young mother, it turns out, and you go to a particular group on Facebook for young mothers, it turns out that the next suggested Facebook group that Facebook uh, would promote to you as something appropriate to young mothers would be the anti-vax movement groups. 
So, <laughs> so, so you're a young mother, you have a child, and of course you have all kinds of concerns and you want to be with people who are facing the same issues like you. And then the next thing they're going to promote because, and you know why? Because it creates engagement. It creates yeah. so strong emotional response, either for or against, right? So they promote the anti-vax movement. And I forget, if you start with a search about geography or something, the second or third promoted video would be the flat earth videos. <laughs> it's same, same thing on uh, YouTube with the Federal Reserve. If you, if you search for the Federal Reserve on the front page, very, very high, is going to be a bunch of shit about the Illuminati. Like that, that you know, the, the, or the, the way. Or the Freemasons or something. Right, right. right? Like the, the, yeah, yeah, exactly. The, the way that these companies are serving things up for algorithms for the sole purpose of engagement is basically dumbing down to the, to the, to the worst instincts that we have as human beings, right? You flick the amygdala hard enough and people get engaged and they'll click on stuff. And it's just, it's such, it's such an asinine sort of, uh, 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 I guess like large version expression of the worst instincts that, uh, that, that human beings have. But it is toxic and it's poisonous to our culture. And, and the result is, uh, I was watching uh, recently surveys between young children growing up uh, or adolescents in China and America. And you know what's the difference? Chinese kids dream to become astronauts today. American kids dream to become YouTube superstars. <laughs> That's the highest. Sorry. <laughs> like, can you imagine how messed up our culture is? Uh, yeah, yeah, no, I, you I, be I live a here. YouTube star, and it's by the way, up. all those people have all kinds of issues, and we know that uh, depression is the least among of them. But we also have suicide, we have uh, substance dependence, heavy dr drug use, alcoholism, all kinds of issues. Uh, you know, all kinds of issues, which which basically are associated with with you know being in that YouTube superstardom spotlight. Yeah. Yeah. And so yet, we go ahead. So what can what can we do about that? I mean, I, 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 unfortunately, <clears throat> we have a situation where regular people have a lot of responsibility placed on their shoulders because the algorithms are giving us what it thinks, what they think we want to see, and they're not wrong. I mean, it clearly is what the average person wants to see because we keep clicking on it, right? No, so they are wrong. What, well, I, I agree that we shouldn't want to see it. I don't want to see a flat earth do. video. You don't. I don't want to see an anti-vax Facebook post. You know, I don't want to see somebody, somebody being beheaded on YouTube. The reason they show me that stuff is because they want me to have a strong emotional response to it. Yeah, either way, right? Because yeah, even if you're if you're arguing against it, that's actually still great for their 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 you know they're going to get more clicks off that the more engagement there is. Right, right, but you're an informed user of YouTube, so you're going to not click on that because you know that if you do click on that, that's only going to feed the monster, right? But sometimes so, I do click on that too because because I have a strong you know emotional response, and and that's how they get you because I see yeah, we're we're all human. People <laughs> believe that the, the Earth is flat. Like, seriously, we're in the 21st century. How, and then I watched the video and I'm like, okay, let me see how smart or how sophisticated their claim is, right? And then I watched the first two or three minutes and I'm just like blown away. And I'm like, seriously, people believe this stuff? You know, so, so I've done that a few times too. But, but the point is, they don't care about showing me what I want to see they want to show me something that's going to have a click 
Those are two very different things you need. And that's why here's the weapon part again of the mass destruction. That's the weapon part. If I'm able to decide what success looks like, that would be very different than what their definition of success looks like. Their definition of success, my definition of success is being informed about a topic from an authoritative, cre uh, credible resource. Their definition of success is clicking an ad, which can be exactly the contrary of my definition of success. But the problem is I don't set the rules, they set the rules, and the result is that kind of depre cultural depreciation, if you will, where unfortunately the new generation dreams of not being an astronaut and going to space and to Mars and beyond, but becoming a YouTube star. I think it's actually worse than that. Um, like it's, it's one, it's one thing to sort of have, have, uh, uh, kids focusing on, on one thing or the other, right. Especially in the country with, uh, SpaceX, uh, uh, you know, getting ready to launch the BFR and they're doing amazing things, right. They should be able to focus on that right now. Our president is lying about 10, 20, 30 times a day and people believe it. Right. It's like, I, I feel like these things are, are deeply, deeply connected. Right. You see, uh, you know, some kind of bullshit uh, uh, on online connected to the Federal Reserve uh, or connected to uh, uh, the fucking flat earth thing or anti-vaxxers or whatever. What that really is, is a breakdown of our epistemological uh, you know, way that we convey knowledge in this country. Right. And so now anyone can say anything and then people are sort of given the space to believe it, even when it's utter bullshit. I think, yeah. I think that, that we have to face the, the fact that, again, I think regular people have some responsibility here, though. Right? I realize that an algorithm that is motivated purely by wanting clicks and money isn't an ideal situation. But also, you know, we don't have to be on YouTube. right? We could be somewhere else. YouTube is a privately owned company. They can do whatever the hell they want. So we need to figure out you a way as a society... Well, yeah, that's the, it's <laughs> sure, awesome. I don't agree with that. <laughs> no, here's the thing. No, no. If you if you if you want to be uh, uh, throwing content out, if you if you basically want an audience in the states, you have to be on YouTube. That's the oh, real man. problem. Like, it, it's it's absolutely systemic because they think you're controlling the whole the whole uh, 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 you know they've got a, a basically a monopoly on attention online. Don't get me wrong. I'd love to get on it onto a different uh, platform. I want to get off Facebook, right? I freaking live there, but at the same time, how do you do it? Here's the problem. Here's the problem. So I give you two points. First of all, you should guys read uh, the most fantastic of uh, they're kind of four short stories by Cory Doctorow called Radicalized. Uh, it's his latest book called Radicalized, and he takes on that argument there specifically, like, oh, if you don't like this, you can just walk away, and how utterly ridiculous that is. Right. And, and, and especially in the first story, which is called unauthorized bread. And basically unauthorized bread is, um, you know, uh, let's say you have a toaster and you want to toast uh, your toast in the morning with your coffee and your breakfast. Right. Only, you know, copyrighted certain types of bread that you can put in your toaster. And if you say, oh, I'm going to make my own home bread or I'm going to take this brand, which is not paying money royalties to my toaster, my toaster refuses to toast my bread because it's unauthorized bread. And the same applies for the dishwasher. You know, authorized dishwasher, uh, uh, special uh, approved dishes. So if you take dishes from this brand, 
it works fine. If you take dishes from this brand, it doesn't work because they're unauthorized. And the same with everything else like that, right? And the, the, their argument is like, well, if you don't like it, don't buy this toaster. But the problem is that after this gets to a certain level, you honestly, you really have no choice. And let me just give you a concrete example in, in our social media right now. The reality is many people, something like, I forget the numbers, but I think 10 to 15 million, especially young adults, dropped Facebook and left <laughs> it. And guess where they went? Instagram. Exactly. Right? So they still ended up in Facebook. You know, and that's the problem. That's why right. I tell because you because Facebook have no bought option. Instagram, right? That's where yeah. you're getting at. Well, and, and it's because Facebook bought Instagram. That it just making that exactly. clear. Exactly, but yeah. Facebook bought everything, and Google is becoming not Google. It's already been for a long time Alphabet, which means A to Z. So soon enough, you, if you, if you're talking about algorithms, you're talking a, an alternative reality which is controlled by YouTube or Google or Facebook. Soon that reality would be the default reality and opting out will not be a problem, uh, will not be an option. So right now you can say, oh, you can opt up for YouTube. Sure, if you're in the middle of like, I don't know, in, in the Appalachian mountains and you're sort of living off the grid, okay, and you don't have a business and you don't do anything, fine. For now you can do it, but eventually even then you wouldn't be able to do it because those things are going exponential and they're literally uh, spreading in every little nook and cranny of our society. And there will be a time where opting out will not be possible if you want to actually be a member of that society. Well, I think I that, think last that, we bit, that last bit's the important part. Sorry, Rio. <laughs> like, cause it, it, you know, cause we can, as, as a, a, a sort of thought, you know, uh, idea or whatever, right? Like as a, just a little imagination, we could make a video, we could put it up on uh, uh, some other platform and hope for the best. And I think that when, when, when we talk about the inevitability of these things becoming uh, uh, the monsters that they can become is because they've captured the entire culture. Like the, the, if, if 90% of people are getting their content from, from YouTube or from either Google or Facebook uh, organized uh, content creators, you know, trying to opt out, like doing the personal responsibility thing that the three of us could decide, yeah, we should totally not consume that content anymore. Cool. If you want to create content that's actually going to be seen and you do it somewhere else, it just won't work but it's not just Facebook. So Facebook would own Instagram. They would have your digital currency that you're going to pay with. They wanna be your internet provider. They wanna be the company that hooks your straight uh, sort of uh, human implant straight in your neuro implant straight in your brain. They wanna do, uh, they wanna control your virtual reality. They wanna control your, the apps on your phone. They wanna do, they wanna control every facet of your life. and the, that's why Google is no longer Google, but it's Alphabet because they want to do A to Z. Alphabet, A to Z. Right. Well, I mean, of course, every place. business wants to do all of those things, right? Sorry? Yeah, no, I, I, I hear you. I mean, I guess, I guess we're, I'm just to make explicit, I'm, I'm the pro-free market capitalist guy on the show. So I'm going to take the side of the businesses a little bit. But I, I have to say, I mean, okay. obviously. I'm not against free market capitalism good too, to but know. there's no free market capitalism here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. I, we, we, so basically, it sounds like what you're saying is at some point, no matter how difficult it is, and Andrew Yang has made this point that in the case of some things, there's just a natural inclination toward monopoly. Uh, social networks is a pretty good example.
example of that. And again, what makes it natural is, is humans, right? I guess I'm just saying like, I, 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 sometimes I worry that in these conversations, we let, 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 we let regular people off the hook too much. And I'm not trying to make a fallacy of the commons here. I'm just saying like, shouldn't it kind of start with individuals taking some personal responsibility for their own choices? I mean, I don't watch flat earth videos. You know, and I can understand why someone like you, Nicola, because like, you know, you're, you're part of your part of your job is to um, comment on these things. So in a way, you're almost educating yourself because you're a social commentator. Right. I am, too. But that's not something that I want to comment about, um, even when it comes to like, you know, Trump's Trump's videos and stuff. I try not to, to click on them too much. You know, I try to limit my media consumption responsibly. So I'm just saying, like, why, you know, because people say, well, this, this fake news problem is really bad. People believe conspiracy theories. But I, I say this all the time. There's nothing stopping people from subscribing to The Economist and getting their news that way. They prefer to get the conspiracy theories on Facebook. But so that's not an at some point, that's people need I'm to take responsibility. So The Economist's ability to create news or to uh, published news has been severely impacted in the last 10 years. That's true. Secondly, the internet providers uh, now have rules which allow to favor this kind of content versus that kind of content, right? So if you're one of the big media company and you click on a link that li links to them, then you're talking about much faster websites, much faster page load times and all that stuff. And if you think, click on the alternative, it's going to take a lot longer and people are busy and have no time and no patience. And then when you layer all these things up, then you have the fact that, by the way, Facebook is one of the biggest uh, buyer of user information. Mm -hmm. So they buy information uh, about, uh, from your, uh, for example, cell phone provider about your whereabouts geographically. They buy information about your credit rating. Mm -hmm. They buy information uh, from the credit uh, rating agencies. They buy information uh, from your bank, from your credit card people. They buy all that information. So even if you don't have Facebook, Facebook already has you. So they're able to connect all the dots on you all the time. Let me give you two examples. Uh, four years ago, me and my wife went vegan. Okay, we decided one day and we went cold turkey vegan. That was it. I opened up the fridge, whatever I had, cheese, butter, meat. I gave everything to my mother-in-law, uh, my wife's sisters, etc. right? Three days later, we started seeing vegan ads all over our social media, all over anywhere you go. I was thinking, look at these bastards. First, we haven't even told our friends yet, okay? We hardly have told anyone and they already knew that we're vegan, okay? And let me give you even more interesting example. So my wife, um, my wife has a certain app which uh, allows her, her to follow her period, right? So what do you know? When, right when her period starts, she starts seeing, you know, all those ads about all these female products, right? Buy these kinds of things for your period, do this, do that. You have trouble with your period, buy these supplements. These bastards, they know your physical self, they know your financial self, they know your interests, they know your geographical locations, they know where you go to work, they know where you come back, they know how many hours you spend to work, 
uh, at work and they know if you go there directly or if you go uh, take a little detour because all of that information is publicly traded, right? Because the cell phone companies, they, can, uh, they do follow all your GPS data and all that is bundled and sold to people because that's valuable to businesses. <laughs> and when you connect that with your banking information, with your credit card information, with your mortgage services, uh, with your insurance company, it's valuable for everyone. So for example, if you're hanging in this kind of shady neighborhood, you know, suddenly you may discover that your insurance premium is kind of being cranked up a little and you don't know why and they don't tell you why. But that's because the insurance company bought that data and saw that you're taking not the highway, but you're taking a little street, which may be actually a faster route and maybe off traffic, but you're going through this shady neighborhood with, you know, all these strip joints. And uh, especially if you're working at nights, uh, let's say you work uh, at Starbucks and you're a single mother and you, you do what's called um, uh, what's opening and closing. So uh, it's called mm -hmm. clopening. Uh, they call it clopening. So you close the night and then the five hours later, you're the first one who has to go back to open up the shop. The shop. So that's called clopening, right? And so it's like 12.30 at night or zero, uh, 30 minutes after midnight, and you're taking this, you know, uh, through this shady neighborhood with strip joints and, you know, rut row. Hopefully it comes back. Yeah, it's getting easier and easier to edit this kind of stuff out. I can even just drive it on my because phone statistically, now. There's a pre pre hey, sorry, we, uh, we lost you for a couple minutes there, Nicola. Oh, I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Last I heard, you were uh, denigrating strip clubs. Hey, now. Hey, now. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, so you want me to start there and you can cut it together? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. So, so you're driving through this kind of uh, neighborhood which has a bunch of strip clubs clubs and, and you know at uh, you know one o'clock in the morning or something police tend to arrest people who are drinking and driving so they file their police reports those police reports contain valuable data which then is being bought by insurance companies and a bunch of others and then when they look at that data they don't think that you're driving through this shady neighborhood at 12 30 at night according to their algorithm you are a probably drunk driver Probability speaking, because yep. all those people who that drive through that neighborhood at that time of the day, they're drinking and driving and going to strip joints, you know, and therefore they crank up your insurance company. And what I'm saying is that data is literally saturating the world around us. All of those companies are buying all that data and connecting it together. And they know things about ourselves from mm. your period, from the fact that you're vegan, from the fact that whether you have a dog or not, from the fact that whether you've paid your last payment on your credit card or not, and whether you're paying your mortgage on time, how far you, you live from work, all of that. Even if you're not on Facebook, Facebook has that information. Yeah, it's, it's like all, all the phones are recording all of, all of the time. I mean, that's, that's something we've done for a little while. I guess the biggest thing for me is, and this is something Yang has talked about, data ownership solves this, right? If, if you own all of your data, at the very least, they basically have to pay you for it. Uh, but then you know where that data is actually going and you can opt in, you can opt out, right? Because that, that makes it like the second that you actually own all of that data as a human right, uh, then, then companies are going to force 
uh, uh, be forced to basically be be dealing you into that to that economics, right? So you're going to be able to to basically say yes or no or whatever. Like if you want to do it, if not, they're literally going to have to pay you uh, based on the amount of time that uh, have you seen like you know any, any solutions around that that uh, uh, that you think would be near term workable. So first, so that ownership is is you know kind of once the horse has left the barn, kind of which it has, but right. but I think we should kind of put you know limitations or bridle up like their ability to even collect data in the first place right and and when they do uh reselling that data should be illegal in my opinion so for example uh my uh my cell phone uh provider should not have the right to sell the data they collect on me to my bank to the insurance company let alone to facebook right because let's say they say oh you opted in here for this thing fine even if i did fine maybe i did but that allows my data to be used for that purpose only it doesn't give you blank check to then turn around and give that data and sell that data and share it with anyone who is willing to give you a dime for it yeah i think with data ownership they have to pay you for it well it it it's very tricky it's very tricky because the question is when you, you know, anonymize data, first of all, whether you can do that or not is an open question. And right. I'm more on the skeptical side of this. But, but secondly, the question is how much. Uh, so I would prefer to minimize the data gathering to begin with. Because even when you own the data, there's all kinds of possibilities of abuse. You know, so uh, you own your data. Fine. But what if people... Uh, not by your data, but like uh, the NSA or anyone else accesses your data, of course, without your permission, and yeah. then they can turn that against you in, in 50 other ways. Well, I think it's important to mention as well, especially considering the number of people that you were talking to that are on the leading edge of all of these things. Um, it, it is this way right now. It will get exponentially worse over the next 20 years, right? We're, to the point, to the point where big data the will... Surface. Yeah, exactly. So I think that, you know, while while... You know, I, I don't, I don't hear a lot of people talking about this. I think it's because people are sleeping on it. I think that they're, they're, we're going to have to be paying a lot more attention. Well, and it's, it's and also because all the other, all the other front-running presidential candidates. I think yep. Yang's in like fourth place now, which is amazing. But the three people ahead of him in the Democratic primary are insanely old, um, and Trump is insanely old. So, like all the other options are people who, just by virtue of the fact that they are physically ancient, have no idea. Yeah, like they, they, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yang is the only one who's even brought this up. Uh, so, okay, I want I want to pivot a little bit because we were we were talking sure. a little bit off air about uh, sure. uh, about uh, GDP. Um, I brought up uh, universal basic income, and you immediately brought up Milton Friedman. Which, if I had no other reasons to love you, that would be enough. Uh, but let's let's maybe talk about. I, I pulled up. Uh, uh, let's maybe have a chat about you know GDP and how disconnected that is from the average uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, well person, let alone American. Uh, and then uh, I want I want to run through some of the the metrics that uh, Yang is proposing to supersede GDP. Uh, uh, but yeah, so what's what's your what's your take on GDP as a measurement? Like super good, we should all pay attention. Perfectly useless. So <laughs> GDP never meant anything that's of use to any single individual, right? right? GDP is a macro measure that tells you something that means nothing. So if you are a macroeconomist looking at the whole state in general in a sort of a very um, 
how how should I uh, call it? Sort of like a way in which that totally disregards the actual population and their interests. Then GDP is useful, right? Mm -hmm. But if you're uh, John Smith trying to pay your mortgage, that information about GDP is perfectly useless, right? Yep. So, which is why in the last, what is it, at least, I would say 20 years and probably 20 some years now, we have complete decoupling of GDP and standard of living. So, GDP is going up, in other words, standard of living is going down. That in itself should tell you that it's meaningless, right? And you can have, of course, the most uh, ridiculous situation of that was in a country like Chile, or in a country country like Argentina, where if you listen to the economists, they would say, and we're talking Chile not now, we're talking Chile under Augusto Pinochet, okay? If you look at the economists, which of course, uh, Milton Friedman's students were uh, advising Augusto Pinochet, and he was like making people take oaths about, you know, the free market and capitalism and this and that. So if you look at it from a GDP perspective, GDP was growing. So you would say, oh, great. You know, the nation is growing, standard of living should be better. But actually it was terrible. It was the exact opposite. People were struggling not only to make a living, they were struggling to even survive. People were being killed, uh, you know, dropped off helicopters in the middle, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, uh, thrown in jail for decades and all kinds of stuff mm -hmm. like that. Right? Yeah. But all that- But no GDP access, was great. Yeah, no, I, I was about to say, um, I, I was just reading a very disturbing article about the fact that they're um, in, in, you know, apparently in China, they're throwing people in prison for being religious and then um, harvesting their organs. Yeah. Um, in some cases, in, while they're still alive. Minorities. Yeah, no, I mean, there's a, there's like, there's literally a, a ethnic and religious holocaust going on in China right now. And yep. our, our, Civilization is acting like we, we can't do anything about it. And mean, not only that, but the Western world has apparently given up on the idea of anybody policing human rights. So now we're just electing these isolationist synagogues who are saying, not our problem. I mean, I'm sorry, I realize that like, you know, standing up for what's right is hard, but there are people being treated. And, and, and it's happening because, you know, China embraced capitalism. I mean, it's still called the Communist Party, but they're basically state capitalism now. Um, and, and it's a perfect example of what happens when the people pulling the strings at the top of an authoritarian government are saying we need to maximize productivity and maximize GDP and, you know, fuck our citizens in the process. Well, and destroying dissent. I mean, there's a million Muslims in concentration camps right now in China. It's the is... Uyghurs, okay? Yeah. So the Uyghurs um, are this kind of religious Muslim minority, which are ter terribly suppressed. They even take away their children. Uh, and try to basically brainwash them by not allowing them to speak their language and create an alternative identity in them. And all of this is technologically enabled. So they have installed something like 200 million cameras um, in sort of Western China, which is that region where all that situation is developing. They have put over a million, maybe 2 million people in different kinds of camps. And you can see the pictures from space. Um, and all of this is technologically enabled. So all that big data that we were just discussing uh, before is now working there against the population and not for capitalistic or productivity reason, 
but for political agenda against, uh, for the purpose of suppressing a religious uh, minority, which has some, you know, aspirations for at least autonomy, if not, if not independence. Mm-hmm. Right. And in fact, the situation in China technologically is so sophisticated right now, and it has gotten to the level where you can go and jaywalk in a certain city. And within something like a few minutes, maybe four or five minutes afterwards, you would be fined or you would have your credit rating um, diminished because you jaywalked. Okay. Because the cameras would see that you're jaywalking. They have the facial recognition software that immediately would identify who you are. It would connect that information with your credit rating system and you would either pay a fine immediately or you would be downranked on the credit rating system. Yeah, so it's to me, to me what part of what this speaks to and the issue of, of um, the possibility of outlawing the sale of data is, is, is one that I'm interested in. I mean, I, I'd be open to, to supporting that possibly um, as long as it's, you know, applied across the board. So it's just a fair grounds for competition. Nobody's allowed to do that. Everybody yep. has their hand tied in the same way. The government's not picking winners or losers. That's, by the way, kind of what I wish they would do about um, the environment, you know, just outlaw certain practices and say, this is bad for the environment. No company is allowed to do that. You could give them a little window to But to we have, we have all it. those things that we have outlawed for the environment, but actually, despite the fact, it has been outlawed forever to throw, um, you know, toxic, poisonous stuff that the neurotoxins in the water in Flint, right? And and they've been drinking that water now for at least 10 years, I would say. Five years at least since it became official or five or six years and another five years before that. Um, so if you have mercury in the water, which is a neurotoxin, you know, that's been outlawed. But the reality is the EPA has been literally destroyed. Uh, it's toothless. Yep. Um, they don't have a budget to investigate to they can't even test on a regular basis let alone investigate let alone prosecute let alone you know ensure uh successful prosecutions yeah even in those cases where we have they actually just dropped all those regulations too (laughs) like yeah we have to Instead yeah. of it being instead of it being toothless with those laws that did exist before, which was most of the Trump administration up till now, they actually just got rid of the regulations. Like they they're just gone now. They're just like, yeah, fuck it, let's all die. I'm like it's fine. People will be making more money. GDP will do very well. Yeah, of course, GDP, and that's another case with GDP, right? If you throw all the poison in the water, and you improve your bottom line because you don't have the cost of treat, treating the outflow yeah. of your plant then your profit goes up, GDP goes up, and everything looks fantastic in paper. Yeah. But the reality is you're throwing neurotoxin in the water, which has particularly pernicious, bad, and lifelong lasting effects on children. Yeah. So yeah, you have to outlaw the future. And, yeah, you have to outlaw and enforce it. <laughs> and that, I think that's the, that might be the, the largest takeaway of the Trump administration. Um, and maybe globally with the China thing, like the, any, any law or idea or principle that you have that goes unenforced is fucking meaningless. Like that, the, the reason why I've been screaming about impeachment for the longest time, the second that you get a president like this thinking that they can get away with it, the next Trump will actually be smart. Trump is not. Like he's not smart at all. The next one will see the holes in the system and take advantage of every single one of them. And you've just proven that you won't do anything. And that basically the democracy is over at that point. If, they, if, if during, during some of the interviews or debates, somebody had just asked him, 
what is the executive branch and what is it responsible for? <laughs> he wouldn't have been able to answer that question at all. And, but, but, and he, so, but here's the thing that blows my mind. And I'm starting to notice this more and more this comes up sometimes on the show. Cause like as a, a, a traditional conservative, which really is a cl- classic liberal, you know, in, along very much along the lines of Milton Friedman, um, it's really funny for me to watch the Republican Party turning into this like statist authoritarian nightmare, right? But it's this weird kind of authoritarianism. It's not that weird, really. It's just a banana republic authoritarianism. So Trump is embracing and abusing every single kind of executive power where it helps him, where it helps him enrich himself through selling government in, um, influence or where it helps him politically. But he's refusing to live up to his responsibility as the head of the executive branch to actually like enforce our laws. So the laws that are meant to protect you and me, he's not enforcing those. And so this, this party that used to be the party of the rule of law is completely the opposite. Now it's now the party of don't enforce the laws and abuse the power that I have for my own personal gain instead, which is another way of violating the rule of law. So he's violating the rule of law every which way. But here's the thing about Trump. Let me sort of be a Trump defender here for a moment. If that's possible. <laughs> Go on. So, so look, my wife is, uh, my wife's family is from Rochester, New York. And basically 90% of her relatives there voted for Trump. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's so many times we had like a, like a big family gathering and my wife was like, don't you say a thing. Don't you say a word. <laughs> anyway, but the point is, Trump was the only, I don't know if you guys ever been to Rochester, New York, but Rochester for a hundred years used to be at the cutting edge of technology uh, and tremendous business where first was the Eastman and then it became the Kodak company, right? So we're talking until, you know, late 1990s, 120,000 employees directly working for Kodak and then all kinds of, you know, tens of thousands of other subcontractors who were working with Kodak as provider of supplies and all kinds of different things, right? And a company that was worth $28 billion. That company got destroyed, basically came bankruptcy in 2012. What that meant was that Rochester got destroyed just like Detroit got destroyed. So now, all those people who, my wife's family, most of them used to work for Kodak. And they used to make, you know, people who either made it through high school barely or never even made it through high school used to make 80, 90, and $100,000 salaries working for Kodak. When that happened, they lost all their jobs. Rochester now looks like Detroit downtown. I don't know if you've been there, but it's like dead. Dead office buildings, destroyed scary in the middle of the night, drug addicts, crime, you name it. It's, it's terrible. It's utterly terrible. And in defense of Trump, Trump was the only guy who came with a narrative who, that first empathized with their problems, right? Because they lost their, their way of making a living. Their houses got depreciated in value because when the general macroeconomy in Rochester got suppressed and everyone was making a fraction of the money they were making, suddenly no one had money to buy real estate and suddenly houses were much, much less valuable than they used to be, right? 
So everything got economically suppressed and Trump was the only person who first empathized with them and second promised them a better future. Now, it's a harder story if that was a realistic promise, right? Right. Let's make America great again. Let's be clear, it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, no, just in case, and every, everyone, everyone knows. So, and, I, was about, I mean, like, I'm sorry, I just don't have, uh, no disrespect to your wife's family, but like in general, I just don't have a lot of sympathy for people there, I'm trying to remember who it was. Um, somebody said, uh, if you're willing to trade your freedom for security, you deserve neither. Yeah, it was maybe Thomas Jefferson, I think. Yeah, I think said. I was thinking either Jefferson or... Yeah, it was, it was back there. Yeah, yeah. so this, but, this I mean, is so like, where... So I'm sorry, like, I, I get it. I understand that you feel like you're entitled to a high-paying job even though you're not educated. But also, that doesn't mean that you elect a lying, well-known... I mean, his response, his, his reputation as a con artist was well-established. But they had no alternative is what I'm saying. He was sure the only one who has a story. Hillary Clinton had no narrative. She had no story that was forward-looking. Right? Or, or identifying the actual problems. And this is, this is the well, thing yeah, that... Because she was more conservative than him. <laughs> right. Sure. This is the and thing that Andrew Yang does really, really well. To connect with them. So what she was yeah. saying never fit with those people's worldview. Okay, never fit with what hurts them, never fit with any hope light in the tunnel for them and their, their life. Trump yeah. had a narrative that first empathized with their problems and secondly made a promise, it a blamed, false promise. Yeah, blamed brown people for it. So and this, sure. is, this, is, this is exactly what Yang says. The reason why Trump got elected is because we lost 4 million jobs in all the swing states and all those jobs got lost to automation, not offshoring which is actually yeah, but, the, the problem the rest of the Democrats are making right now is that they keep talking about offshoring your factories going overseas and stuff. That literally like it barely happens. Over the last 10 years, we've lost exactly 13% of jobs in manufacturing to offshoring and the rest to automation, right? Literally offshoring like Offshoring to machines. Now we're offshoring to machines. Even it, places even, like even China right. and, and, you know, East Asia, they're offshoring to machines now too and they're yeah. suffering because of that and they'll be suffering more and more right. and more, by the way. So this, this, this comes around to the core proposition of why, why and, and Trump even says, like, you know, Trump identified the pain. He misidentified the actual reason why that problem existed and was sure. actually speaking to people about that. And then, of course, everything after that, we've been watching the he, dumpster fire for a long yeah. time. We don't have to talk about it. But now, here we are, and this is why we're backing, backing Yang now, uh, is that he's basically saying, okay, we got we to do something like universal basic income, which, again, I thought was years before we were going to talk about it. Uh, I mean, you uh, interviewed Ray Kurzweil. Ray Kurzweil's been talking about uh, universal basic income as a necessity towards the end of this decade. Quite frankly, we need it now, and we definitely need to start talking about it now anyway. Uh, but then actually doing measurements uh, that, uh, uh, that are going to be tracking things that are actually decoupled from GDP, right? Uh, which I think th those combinations, I think, are, are, are going to be what, uh, what really allows us to, to not only get that narrative the way you're saying, because you're right about that. We need to be able to speak to that, to that economic discomfort because that's only going to 10x over the next so, little while. So I think it was called the Human Development Index that the UN uses, and it, it takes into account things like access to healthcare, access to education, uh, longevity, uh, that's to say life expectancy. So let me just give you a few examples that may or may not surprise you or shock you, but let's see. So first of all, there is very, you know, I, I live in Canada, as I said, my wife's family is half American, half Canadian, um, even though they're kind of all Italian, really, but they're like, you know, second generation Italian immigrants, like from Rochester, New York, and then first generation Italian immigrants in Canada. But anyway, so turns out, and for all effective purposes, there's not so much difference in most things between Canada and the US. We're very close economically. We're almost the same economy. 
um, we share the same geography more or less, etc. And yet, a Canadian lives four years longer than an American on average, right? So that that's a lot, actually, if you think about it, four years longer. Secondly, um, infant mortality here is about two and a half to three times lower than the United States of America. Now, when you actually take into consideration the money that you guys spent for that, which is about two and a half, three times more, then you actually get price performance difference by a factor between five and six for dollars spent, right? So you get to pay six times more or you, you get six times worse result than us for the same dollars spent, right? Then let's talk about crime, right? Before you talk about crime, infant mortality, I want to repeat this, is two and a half to three times higher in the United States, the greatest country in the world than it is in Canada. Yeah, I, the, the numbers, I mean, we have to be clear, we're, talk, we're talking about averages, right? So if you're an affluent American, you live in a nice neighborhood with a good hospital, you're probably getting as good or better care than the average person in Canada. But the numbers are driven down because there's a lot of poverty here. Yeah, because it's not like three per thousand that die, but actually in the bad neighborhoods, it's like 10 or 12 yeah. per right. thousand that die. And right. the reason why the, the, the average is a little better is because you have the affluent neighborhoods where one per thousand dies per se. Uh -huh. Yep. Right? Yeah. I mean, so like if you want to talk, is, yeah, go ahead. We're in the 21st century and that can easily be fixed. Yep. And it yep. should not be happening in, quote, the richest country in the world, especially when you think about the fact that you're already spending the money for that. Right? It's also, I mean, with the, let's talk about the richest country in the world thing because um, there. It, that's debatable. I mean, um, it is definitely a rich country. <laughs> I brought up the economist earlier. It's debatable they, they, because yeah, it's called the richest country in the world because of GDP. Well, yeah, exactly. But, and but that's but, the problem again that we're talking about, right? Right. But, but if you look at GDP, not the richest country, if you talk about access to education, longevity, mm -hmm. healthcare, etc. Yeah, it's not even the richest if you just talk about GDP per capita, which would be a far more logical thing to talk about, right? Um, you know, even if the money isn't evenly distributed, obviously a country that has a lot more people has more expenses as well. I mean, part of the problem we have with our economic model and system, the way it works now, is we overtax the middle class in order to subsidize the living of the poor. And so basically, most of our citizens are actually a drain on our economy and our current system. And so having a high GDP, it, I mean, it, it's, what matters is how high is it relative to your cost? And people cost a lot of money, even though we're not spending. The, 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 the crazy thing is we have all these bad outcomes, but we, ought, we, have, we have high taxation and we have high social, wel we have high social welfare cost programs. We just don't do them well. We have these stupid means testing systems. It means a lot of people don't get the help they need and that they're not allowed to actually escape poverty by working. Let me, let me throw a bit of, of, of oil here in the fire by asking you this. Do you guys know what's the poorest state in the United States? Um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say the most, the most Republican state. Sorry? <laughs> Uh, I'm going to say the most Republican state, just as a, as a, a, a guess. Absolutely it's definitely wrong. a red state. <laughs> Absolutely wrong again. Okay, what it's is a, it? What is it? The golden state of California is the poorest state 
in the United States. Okay, why do you say that? So now, if you go and actually look at the ranking of the poorest state in the United States, you would pull out the numbers and GDP would tell you that California is somewhere between 11, 12th to about 18th poorest state in the United States, well after places like West Virginia, Alabama, Mississippi, Missouri, all those, right? The reality though is that GDP, again, does not take into consideration the cost of living. And if you take, and of course, everyone knows that living, let's say in West Virginia, is like diametrically different than living in California. Yeah, I, I, I have to stop you for a second though, because California is certainly in terms of GDP is what one of the top, certainly one of the three highest, if not the highest state. It's the highest. Yeah, yeah that's what I thought. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's like what, it would be the fifth, country in the world or something like that. Something like that. Yeah, by itself, right? No, I mean I understand, but like cost of living is also high in richer places. So I don't, I, I, I don't really follow your logic there. I think yeah, what you're, 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 you're conflating, you're conflating something like quality of life. I'm not conflating. Look, I've looked at those numbers because I've spoken, I've spoken about that and, and I'll tell you why I'm sharing this with you guys. So if you take into consideration things like not only cost of living, but also access to education, the cost of education, the cost of transportation, taxation, um, the cost of food, because there's a big difference between the cost of food in California and in West Virginia. If you take uh, all those necessities of life and if you compare them, actual apples to apples, then you would see that California is not between 12th and 18th, but actually is the poorest state in the United States. And about 20.6% of the population live at or below the poverty line. There is a lot of, there are a lot of poor individuals. Yeah, and I think especially comparing to access for, to, to food, education, that kind of thing is, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, my argument five. would be that they should leave though. I mean, like if you don't, if you don't have a high salary, you shouldn't be living in California. Well, and exactly. we've talked about this on the show before too, like without universal basic income, they don't have a choice. That's, no, no, well, but, it's but, certainly harder. That's But true. hold on a second too, because a thousand bucks of, of uni, UBI in West Virginia is a lot. A thousand bucks in Los Angeles or in San Francisco and thereabouts is nothing. No, a, th- right. yeah, a thousand that dollars creates would, that fluidity though, right? A thousand dollars would, wouldn't even be enough to rent a one-bedroom apartment. On right. And th- this is where, where, you know, when we talk about UBI, and I love talking about UBI, we could talk about it all day. Uh, you know, it, it, if everyone in the, in the country is getting a thousand dollars a month, I, I personally believe you would have the capacity to find places in Mississippi or some other place where you could actually go and live and there'd actually be an economy. Get a bus ticket. Right, well, that's exactly it, right? Like, you can literally go and live. You can go get a farmhouse in the middle of some place that's, you know, you like post-agriculture or whatever. You go get a farmhouse and live, like, an amazing life in the middle of nowhere uh, and, Look, and, and be able to do that. When I was in West Virginia, I was paying uh, 100 bucks a month because me and my roommate we're renting the second floor of a house for $200 a month. I'm telling you, man, like that's like people, people would do that. I do want to go back to the, uh, uh, the richest country in the world thing. Only Switzerland is higher than the United States for me, net financial assets per capita. And the next is Sweden, which is half of the United States. So, I mean, Switzerland's fallen. I mean, they had all that Nazi gold to, uh, to accrue for a long time, those fuckers. Uh, but uh, yeah, the United States is rich. Yeah, no, I mean, our, our GDP per capita is still too low. It's something like, what, 40? I was kind of shocked. I looked it up recently and it was it's not- It's like 35,000 a person yeah, or something. That's not, that's, that's, a t- that's really terrifying, right? Yeah, but look, like, I, I, it takes half that. Wait, yeah, it's, what? It, it, 
in, in Canada, it's like 25,000 Canadian or something like that. And yet in every measure possible, we're doing better than you guys. We live On, four well, years for the longer. average person. Yeah. Because they, honestly, you're, you're distributing. Yeah. Well, okay. So we suffer less, less depression. We have less obesity, less diabetes, less cardiovascular disease, less crime, and we have free healthcare to boot it. Yeah. I guess, Nicola, like, so for me, where, I'm, where I'm coming from here is um, I want a world where everybody has a high quality of life. I don't want, just want a world where, you know, people have a roof over their head and they have enough. We to- all want that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I agree that we all want that. But in like, so the question is, what is, what is the set of policies that's going to get us there? Because well, 25000 or $35,000 a person is not enough to have a high quality of life. So we need, to, we need to grow GDP and also have something like a high UBI. So, I, so- I, I, I don't think that it's an either or thing because I think, G, I, think that, I think having a UBI would actually create a positive feedback loop where GDP would, would 10x. So well, to it, answer it, your yeah. question, it would be reasonable to ask why is it that countries with lower GDP like Canada, like Denmark, et cetera, et cetera, beat us at most everything that we can measure other than GDP, right? Why is it that uh, Canadian infant mortality is two and a half times better if we spend two and a half times more money on it than the Canadians do, right? That's the question. That's why I was talking about California, right? Because the presumption is techno-solutionism. And that's to say what Peter Diamandis uh, talks about in his book, Abundance. His claim is, let's have the right technology, the right capital, and the right people, and we're going to sell, solve all of humanity's challenges. And I went to Los Angeles right after he published his book, and I was shocked by tens of thousands of homeless people. It looked like under every bridge, under every underpass or overpass or whatever, there's like 10 cities of homeless people. And by the way, I did some research on that too. And it turns out the largest demographic group of those people is war veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan who, has, who have unfortunately all kinds of issues when they come back home and often end up homeless on the streets, right? And so it's not that uh, California has not enough uh, capital. It has the largest capital. It's not like they have not enough technology. They have the most technology. It's not like they don't have smart people. They have a ton of smart people. And yet it has the worst results of the worst results of all of the United States of America. Well, let's be clear though. I mean, 10, 20,000 people is a tiny fraction of the population. I mean, more people live so, in LA so County. So let's, let's be accurate here. It's not <laughs> 10, 20,000 people. It's something like 70 or 80,000 people. And again, yeah. if you look at, Per capita. Let me just give you a couple of examples. And that's what I'm talking about, right? Because you, you made the presumption, I think Corey made the presumption, it's going to be, you know, a, a Republican state. It's not a Republican state, right? It's not a sudden state. It's a democratic state and it's a well-off state, right? Well, so yeah. Exactly the opposite of what we imagine it would be. Right. But let's be clear. I mean, you're, 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 again, you're talking about quality of life as opposed to, um, as opposed to like, actually how rich the state is but so but here here's the thing though a lot a lot of the republican states um in the middle of the country 
and um, I want to be really clear here. A lot of a lot of people there's there's partisanship. There are a lot of people who have loyalty to the Republican Party. That is not the same thing as standing up for conservative values. These red states in the middle of the country. The reason they're doing okay is because yes, they have a low 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 um, cost of living, but also they are subsidized by the taxes that are paid by rich people in California and New York. So if we were to sure. if we were to just let Californians and New Yorkers keep their money, the people in the red states would turn they would turn into a third world country overnight because that, they yeah. they're completely reliant on the, on those subsidies. Yeah, it's entirely it's entirely re- redistributive from the, uh, the the wealthy states and to the, 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 the redistribution here in California are getting the short end of that yeah. stick because poor people in California are getting the short end of that stick because California doesn't have the money to take care of their own citizens because they're being forced by the federal government to take care of everybody else's. Look, and I've that, heard that argument in Canada with our provinces because we also have provinces that are better off than others. But the point is that in, on average, we face the same issues in Canada and we do much better. So to answer your original question, what kind of set of policies Thank you. do we need to get to, right? In order to get better result, the first logical thing is to ask yourself, who are the people who are already getting better results by spending less money and getting more as a result? And what can we learn from their experience? And as I was saying, you can look at Canada, but Canada is not the best example by far. You can look at places like Denmark, Sweden, Norway, and you can learn. And I'm not saying take their answer and apply it to the US, but I'm saying you can learn from that a lot. So first, that's first step, right? And and I always compare, by the way, try to make it apples to apples. So when you tell me, oh, it's only 20, 30,000 people, look, Toronto is the third largest metropolitan in North America after New York and Los Angeles. And we are by far the fastest growing one compared to you guys, right? So in another seven to eight years, Toronto would be 10 million people. Right now we're 7 million people. And by the way, 72% of the population has been born not outside of Toronto, but outside of Canada, Hmm. right? 72% of the population was not even born in the country. Right? And we have the fastest growing city in the world. And how, how does it look? We have a ton of problems. We are so much better than most of your big cities. Let me just give you a couple of examples. We surpassed Chicago as the third largest metropolitan about 10 or 15 years ago. When we have a really, really bad year with lots of violent crime and murder, we have about 70 murders per year in the, about the worst years of murder. <laughs> in a population of 7 million people, right? That's one in 100,000. In Chicago, you can get 70 people dead in a month. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay? or, or less. So, so the question is, how is it that we're bigger than them and they do 10, 12 times worse in terms of crime. Yeah, let's focus on the why. Because I mean, I think the comparative analysis, we, we, uh, uh, we, beat, we beat that to death a lot. What, what are the things that even a city like Toronto or Canada, I mean, and, and again, like I, it, it's, it, it has to start with free healthcare. I mean, that's just, that's something that, that you okay, know, coming from Canada, I rant about. I, honestly, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's but healthcare it's that you, it's healthcare that you never think about. Right? And you get, but like, honestly, like the reason why I push back on that is that like that, that counter argument comes up a lot and it just doesn't matter. 
like Canadians. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Well, no, but it, like it, it's, we do this all the time. Like it's not free. They're going to like up the taxes of the middle class, blah, blah, blah. All of that obviously no, I mean, the thing that, that it's it just, costs it's less money. It's technically not free. It's just not accurate to say that it's free. When you experience it as okay. a human, okay, let you me experience just say, that as free healthcare. Okay. But let only me if say, you don't pay taxes. Okay. But let me just say in terms of taxes, do you know that actually I pay lower taxes than most Americans? Yeah, no, I agree completely. I, so, so that's actually getting to the heart of what I was saying. Okay. No, People who think that point. we're going to fix our problems here by increasing taxes are overlooking the fact that we already pay very high taxes. When you consider a federal, ta- federal um, income taxes, state taxes, um, you know, property all taxes, of those. taxes, we pay a lot in taxes in the United States. It's not that the government doesn't have enough money. It's that whenever they get their dirty hands on it, they misspend it. Okay, but but here's the thing. So so in 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 some cases, actually, the presumption that we pay higher taxes is wrong. It's like literally wrong. So so as I was saying, we get better results with less money, and and that means also more money in our pockets, right? Yes. So we have progress on the cheap because you see, it turns out that if you have Free healthcare, which as you point out is a misnomer because it's not free, it's paid from taxation, actually it creates all these spillover positive benefits which actually end up raising GDP, actually lead to less incarceration, less petty crime, um, longer living people, more productive people, all kinds of issues which actually, actually pay off for themselves in the long run. Let me give you a more specific example about UBI. The name of the city escapes me, but I'll send you a link after our conversation because I have it in my reference links. We tried in Canada UBI in the 1970s, okay? That was an experiment by by a provincial government, and I forget if it was in the province of of Manitoba. It was, uh, I think it was actually Quebec. Well, I'm not sure. Maybe it was Quebec, but I think it was one of the prairie provinces. It might have been Quebec, but it was in the 1970s in a city of about 1,000 to 1,200 people where at the time um, we were giving them something like $14,000 a year. So they created this pilot project where universal basic income was implemented for the whole population and it was set at something around eleven to twelve hundred dollars a month. We're talking, you know, forty years ago. Yeah, it's and pretty significant. By the way, was, it was Manitoba. You're totally right. Thank you. Nailed it. <laughs> so then, what happened was there was a change of government, and the project was scrapped, and the results were never actually looked at. Was mothballed. And then a few years ago, a researcher did an analysis of all the data that got collected. And it turned out that in that specific city, there was a tremendous positive impact because during the pilot, we had lower crime rate, we had uh, uh, less people going to the emergency room and lower cost uh, uh, for, for healthcare we have higher percentage of the population graduating from high school. We had lower percentage uh, of petty and other crime in the city. Um, And generally, 
most things that you could measure, it turned out in that period of time were better off than immediately before that and also immediately after that, after they scrapped the project. <laughs> Yeah, so this is so true. I mean, you're right. So I guess like let's let's uh, we've we've had a pretty negative conversation. Let's try to try to to put some sunlight, some light at the end of the tunnel here. So you you were right, of course, that Trump was I would I would phrase it as cynically taking advantage of people's suffering um, by selling them um, some snake oil uh, and saying, "Oh, I'm going to solve all your problems," um, which which by the way was already kind of a remarkable thing for a Republican to say because back when Republicans were conservative, they would have told them to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. But he's saying, look, look, don't worry, just elect me and I'm going to go in and I'll drain the swamp and I'll personally solve all your problems. I'll help you out. That's what he was saying. The Democrats never said that. Well, the Democrats are actually right wing. They're like, they, they're, 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 they don't, they, they, they really are. (laughs) That's why California is the way it is. It's not because it's not because liberalism doesn't work. It's because liberalism does work. It's doing exactly what it's set out to do, which is to create a free market where winners win and losers lose, um, which, which, which is something that, which is why we need a um, social liberal policy, uh, which is more centrist or center left that has a, like a, Forget a, a the labels. social safety net, right? So you we want a social results. safety net. And so, but basically what we're getting at here is Yang, unlike the Democrats, um, is going to, talk to these people in a way that they're going to understand, which is great. And that's why we should nominate him. But also he has a reform of our social welfare system, which will actually work. The one we have now just wastes our money. It doesn't work. It's going, he's going to replace it with something that actually works. So that's, that's yeah. When you come into the, the, the combination of Medicare for all, which again is not as good as the Canadian healthcare system, but it's a hell of a lot better than this, combined with a freedom dividend of $1,000 a month, is, that's basically why we keep ranting about this guy, uh, uh, Nicola, because it, it, it speaks to that difference between the results that you get in Canada and, and the United States. Um, and it, it really speaks to trying to figure out how to uh, 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 at least start the process of, of making a more equitable society. And again, you know, this, this is when we're at the knee of the curve of an exponential uh, uh, um, increase in automation, in AI taking jobs, right? Like that, you know, and, and this is where, you know, again, Yang comes in and, and, and speaks to those same people, the same people that are, are feeling that disconnect between GDP and their own personal uh, uh, situations in their, in their lives. Right. It's listen, it's not freaking Brown people. It's not even offshoring jobs. It's automation. And that automation is only going to get a hundred times worse over the next 10 years, right? So we've got to figure out how to do something about that now to, to literally like go 180 and start figuring out how we can measure things that are actually going to matter that aren't GDP because that doesn't matter. And actually his policy platform basically echoes the UN uh, measurements that, uh, that you were talking about. You know, we get a UBI in so that we can actually start uh, giving people $1,000 a month. So if they want to move or vote with their feet, right, they're going to be able to, uh, uh, they're going to be able to do that. You're going to be able to go into a town in the middle of, of, of West Virginia and the coffee shop's going to be full because everyone's got $1,000 a month. You know, like it's that injection in local, uh, local economies where like at yeah. least we can actually start doing the U.S. version of the kinds of, uh, of, of social constructs and economies of scale that people like Sweden or, or, or Denmark are actually accomplishing. Yeah, and that's uh, why I insist doing, that you should be doing it better than them. We'd be doing it better than them. And it, it would be really good for California Maybe. too, by the way, because instead of having all of these homeless people on the streets, they, those people would be living in cheap apartments in West Virginia. Yeah, but, but 
the point is that I was trying to, to, to carry through here is that we should forget the labels. You guys don't care about liberal policies and this policies. You need results. So again, forget the labels, look at results. Who gets results in the world? And again, Canada is doing okay, which is to say a little better than the US, but not that great compared to the Nordics. Sweden, Denmark, all those countries are doing better than us. So don't look at Canada, look at those countries. Learn from them. Of course, if you want, look at Canada too, because we get every once in a while something decent, something right. And then forget the labels, just go for the result, whatever works. Yeah. And yeah, no, yeah. I agree. I mean, but I also think that I think that we should aim higher than even that. And I, I think Yang's policies would be would, would would take the US from where it is now and would put it literally at the top in terms of in terms of every measurement, I think it would put us at the top in terms of um, in terms of GDP, and then I think it would also put us at the top in terms of um, quality of life. Um, I was actually in Stockholm recently, and you want to talk about it expensive? <laughs> it was like fifty dollars a person to take the train or something. They only had first class seats. That was like it's basically like if you're not if you're not an insanely wealthy person, you couldn't afford to to do anything in that city. Um, but yeah, but, but I'm sure you saw students are doing very well, so they can afford it. Yeah, and the minimum wage is like thirty dollars or something, thirty five dollars or something, right? When I yeah. was in uh, Denmark a couple of uh, months ago, I spoke in Copenhagen. The minimum wage is like 22 euros or something like that, which is 30 Canadian like, dollars. Okay, yeah. and so if you're a student, your education is is kind of mostly free. Um, you get a, a government stipend of maybe 1,400, 12, 1,400 bucks a month, something like that. And then if you work part time on the side, you can actually make, uh, you know, let's say you work as a waiter or whatever, you can make another. 1500 bucks a month and with the help you're actually bringing in about $2,500 a month mm -hmm. you know and you can afford to to live actually there yeah yeah although I mean I wouldn't I wouldn't want to live in Stockholm on 2500 a month but yeah no I hear you I mean like I guess what I'm saying is I want us to stop talking about things merely in terms of having people's basic needs met because that is that is something that turns off people on the right what we need to talk about is how do we create a world where individuals have a better chance of creating independent wealth? We want to create a world where even if you're a waiter, you can still like start stop putting money away in a 401k. That's the kind of world that we need to be creating. Well, and this well, is really the, here. yeah, the, the secret sauce of this podcast, which is like, obviously, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, ending suffering more than I'm thinking about, you know, having people get into, you know, what anywhere else would be called the like upper middle class, but that should still be the goal. Right. And yeah. Then, well, I mean, I would define being lower middle class as suffering. No, I know. I, yeah. Like the, the, but I mean, the cool I don't, thing I is, I don't mean that in a, in a, in a, yeah, I'm not trying, I'm not trying to be an asshole about it. I'm just being no. honest. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. Giving paycheck to paycheck is not a recipe for happiness. It's really not. It's 100%. And that, you know, when, you know, in America, you know, with 50% of people can't handle like a $500 emergency, it's ridiculous. So we got to obviously be, the only point I was trying to make is the, the policies that we spend most of our time talking about now are addressing both of those concerns simultaneously. And as a collective, they, they have a, a chance to, to really make a difference. Anyway, sorry, Nicola, go ahead. Yeah, but, but, you know, first of all, the minor point is that the, Putting your money in 401k, as millions of people discovered about a decade ago, is not necessarily a very smart 
strategy because definitely they, don't put all your eggs in one basket. That's for sure. They get wiped out, right? Yep. But secondly, and even more importantly, if you want to have rich society, you should not invest in technology, but you should invest in people. That's the key point. And that's what the Danish do. Danish have no natural resources whatsoever. They don't have oil. They have a tiny little country and they don't have any wealth that's actually given to them geographically simply by where they are. And what do they do? They invest in their people, which is why you have uh, Danish engineers, architects, designers, and all that stuff. And that is why that policy of giving free education and actually incentivizing people to stay in school for as long as possible, even when they do PhDs and so on and so on, actually pays off for the country because the, the compound returns on investment come from smart people who are very well educated and then earn very high money that they provide the taxation basis for that whole society. But you have to start with investing in education. So that's the problem with California. California invests in technology, invests in prisons, and it doesn't invest in education. I was reading at the numbers just the other day. They invest something like $50,000 a year per prisoner in California, and Mm. they invest $5,000 per year per student. Yeah. Okay. We're talking 10 times more investment in prisoners than in students. And of course the prisons are privatized. A lot of them are. Yeah, no, I mean, I, where I'm agreeing with you about that. I mean, so, so so if you want to look forward, invest in the future, invest in people, not technology. Certainly. I agree. What I, I, my concern is I want to make sure that, um, First of all, that we actually get results. I'm sure you'd agree with this in education. More money doesn't necessarily mean better results. We have to, you also have to spend the money intelligently. You have to have good pedagogy, right? You have to have good academic standards. So do you know who has the best results in the world in education, for example? Uh, No, I don't. Who? Who? Finland. Okay. You know, Finland was a backwater in terms of education about 30 or 40 years ago. And in, in basically one to two generations, 30 to 40 years, they've become some of the best in the world. And you know how they did it? And that's going to turn off every people, uh, most people now uh, on your side. But they <laughs> decided that all, uh, the, all uh, schools, first of all, should be equal. Second of all, they dismantled any kind of um, appraisal uh, grading policy. And third of all, they decided to diminish and remove things like homework as much as possible. Oh, I, I actually don't disagree with that. Um, I, pedagogy is, is a topic that I'm um, interested in. Um, and Look I, at their I, example, yeah. because one of the things they did, because, you know, in the United States, when you buy a house and let's say you have kids and you're looking always to buy a house near a good school. Mm-hmm. Because you yeah, know, no, I agree. A- well, I, I I want us to do it. I think we we should end property taxes and fund the public pu- fund public schools through um, withholding a portion of a high UBI. That's that's actually what I would like. But yeah, I, agree. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think that I think that all schools should have. I mean, yes, 
is you you shouldn't have some some places where some public schools get get higher budgets than others. I I, I agree that we should have um, a be better education. I'm just saying we have to make sure we're not only throwing more money at it. We also need to do exactly what you just said. Nicola. We need to but do the like, Finnish get better result than anyone yeah. in the world with less money spent, right? And one exactly. of the ways they do that is by deciding that it doesn't matter where you live, you should always have access to the same super high quality of education, period. That's, I even watched yeah. the whole documentary on the topic and I, I don't know if I can find it, but if I do, I'll send you a link. But, but basically the presumption is that all schools need to be equally good, no matter where you live. And then that creates all kinds of spillover effects because right now you have this kind of weird kind of uh, interplay between property taxes, uh, house values, and local schools uh, mm -hmm. that kind of is like a vicious circle in the United right. States. Right, yeah, no, I, I, so the, the, here's how you do that, right? Because we were talking about throwing, threading the needle and finding ways to get both sides to cooperate with each other. Um, you, you say we are going to have better schools, but we're not just gonna give them more money, we're going to improve our pedagogy. And secondly, we're going to cut your taxes, right? So if you live in one of, so like if you live in a high tax area or if you live in a place where you pay a lot in property taxes because property values are high, you probably moved there in part because they have good schools, right? So you've got to tell these people who spent extra money to live in a place with a good school, we're not going to make your school worse. We're going to make other schools better. But also because it wouldn't be fair you to fair fair to you to just take to just like take away your advantage without giving you something else we're going to get rid of your property taxes because we don't need them anymore because we're funding schools differently then the nope that everybody wins so that's the how right basically the, the the idea is to make all the schools equal and like how however you figure out how to actually move that needle freaking move it yeah uh, and of course they're never going to be exactly equal but you just you you raise the standard Right, you raise the the baseline standard, and and um and funding is part of that. Absolutely. No, I, 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 I agree with you about that. I mean, obviously, the the ROI on education is better than prison, and also, you know, this is um this is something that people on the right can get on board with as well. Part of the reason we have so many people in prison is because we have lots of things that are outlawed that shouldn't be outlawed. Right. I mean, certainly the libertarian right, which is the real right. Um, would, would, would love that, you know, like, let's stop throwing people in prison for doing things that shouldn't be against the law in the first place. It just costs taxpayers money. Sure. No, but uh, I, I agree with that too, in, in most cases, which is why now, for example, in Canada, we've legalized marijuana for the last year and, and so on. And has it and turned I, into a hellscape yet? Sorry. Has it, has Canada turned into a hellscape yet? Cause all those people that are just high all the time. I'm totally, I'm, I'm totally fucking with you. They might have lower rates of cancer though. I honestly haven't seen any difference. Yeah, no, that's, that's the thing. They, everyone up there was doing it already. Now they're just not going to get arrested for it. So that's fun. Yeah. I haven't seen any difference, but going back to Finland, which is an interesting case, part of their curricular and that connects again to big data and the first things we started our conversation with, they have, they were the first country in the world that years ago started putting as part of the curriculum fake news and how students as young as seven and eight and 10 years old would be able to have the tools and knowledge and the skills to identify fake news. And they did that for two reasons. First, politically, it's a very important political reason because they're right next to Russia, what mm -hmm. used to be a Soviet Union, which is kind of like 
always sort of like the enemy in a way for them. And Russia has these strong propaganda, fake news, disinformation campaigns that they throw at them every once in a while. And so it's considered a very smart political national defense policy if their population is one, educated enough, and two, capable of discerning truth from bullshit, fake news from real news. Because Yeah, exactly. Russia- yeah. Yeah. So once again, regular people have some responsibility. Like if you believe RT instead of the economist, that's your fault. <laughs> well, no. And that's actually not what he just said. If you, if but, I mean, he's saying we have to educate people. I know. I'm just saying like, like people can educate themselves too. Like, yes, let's improve the standard of education. Let's teach about fake news and all of that. I'm right. completely warm with that. But like, no matter how, like, there are always going to be some people who are just credulous fools who are going to believe the bullshit because they want to. Well, here's the thing. If you just say, well, everyone needs to be responsible, it's a cop-out because you're not doing anything, right? No, I, like, I, 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 while I, I agree, I no, listen, listen, listen philosophically, no, and our listeners are already doing that. Otherwise, they wouldn't listen to us. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous, true. right? Yeah. Um, by saying, you know, the personal responsibility thing, I think we could all agree. I mean, that's, that's great. That sounds, that, you know, people that are watching Honey Boo Boo fucking shouldn't. It's stupid. Great. You know, go listen, read The Economist. But there are actual ways where we can improve the education system in this country and everywhere else on the planet if we, you know, as a principle, where we, where we can move that needle, you know, geometrically, if not exponentially, and actually solve the problem. Right, exactly. But saying, like, we need to teach people about fake news is that's, a, that's a, 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 something we're doing because we recognize that individuals have some responsibility. We want to empower okay. people with the knowledge that they need in order to responsibly consume the media. Okay. Sure. <laughs> <Do> we, <laughs> yeah, dude, I think I think we I think we might have lost. Hey guys, oh, okay. you're back. I thought, you're back. I he was just making that face. No, no, okay, it actually it actually froze on. I'm gonna totally leave it in because you're like, mm. <laughs> it was good. Anyway, uh, Nicola, uh, the sorry. point is just 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 last point here. The point yeah. is that because that's kind of like a typical argument about taking responsibility, and I'm all for it. But here's the thing: you're not responsible for anything until you're adult, which is why in the court of law, when you do a crime and you're seven and a half years old, you're not responsible for your actions, right? Or if you're insane, you're not responsible for your actions, right? Mm -hmm. You have to get to a certain physical and mental and other level of sophistication before you're able to embrace any aura of responsibility. And that's where education comes before responsibility, right? Because education starts from the moment that you're born until the moment that you're dead. But you need at least 18, 19 years of sort of basic education which the state ought to properly be responsible for, like in Finland, before then you can take that responsibility and say, okay, now if I screw up, it's on me. And if I don't do anything, but I already have the tools to discern between fake news and real news, fact from fiction, reality from, you know, propaganda. Yeah, well, certainly the state is already responsible. We've already taken that burden on, so we might as well do it better. Yeah, exactly. Let's, yeah, let's let's do a good job because right now, oh boy, it's, we, could, uh, we could do a lot better without spending an, one penny more. And right? it, it's it speaks to it speaks to wanting to do something about the algorithms that are being used in in platforms that are achieving a monopoly status, uh, which I think is is, is going to be another you know important thing for 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 us to. Do. Uh, and the algorithms are screwing up the education system, by the way, because there's a very particular. Um, uh, 
teacher assessing algorithm that Kathy O'Neill talks in her book called Weapons of Math Destruction, which is one of her great examples, where different teachers, hundreds of them, maybe thousands, got fired because this particular uh, algorithm, which is secret, no one knew about, uh, and she's like a PhD in math, and she said, uh, well, the New York Board of Education or something embraces this algorithm. Can anyone tell me, give me the algorithm? And they're like, oh, it's math. You wouldn't understand it. And she's <laughs> like, excuse me? I'm like a PhD in math from Harvard. Oh, it's math. You wouldn't understand it. Does anyone understand it? Turns out no one in the whole New York, the state of New York, actually understands what the algorithm does and how it does it. So first, it's proprietary. Second, it's secret. Third, people have no idea why they're scoring up and down. So there's no recourse. They cannot improve. It's like my YouTube, my YouTube videos being downgraded. Yeah. It's the same exact thing. And it turns out that it would rank, uh, let's say if you have a, student, a teacher who, has, uh, who is teaching two classes, they get totally inconsistent grades. So one could be like complete 96 success percent and the other could be like 47%. And that's the same algorithm. And based on that stupid algorithm, they fired hundreds upon hundreds of uh, teachers in an attempt to improve the educational system, which in the end ended up doing more damage than good. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I have to say that to me, that just sounds like an example of, of <laughs> it's a cautionary tale about using the massive power of the federal government carefully. Right, <laughs> because that well, is something it, that the government did. It even speaks to, to like, do that, right? Like, right. They, but they, it's they, a private they, algorithm, they, man. It's not it's, the government. It's not. Yeah, it's a private algorithm that uh, that did it. And this it's actually speaks to the private company. The government decided to trust. Fair enough, right? I mean, that's that they're they're taking you know they're 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 taking you know the the word of a private company for that. I think that that there, there's something it's to that. Stupid. This actually speaks to yeah. This speaks to something that uh, Nicola, you and I talked about. Uh, we were talking about AI. And, you know, there's deep learning algorithms where the results coming off of those deep learning algorithms, they, the people that are studying them don't even understand them at all, right? And those are complex algorithms. These are simple algorithms that are starting to interact with, with people. And, you know, there is the private public interplay, you know, all these things that we need to look at. Even the simple ones are fucking up, right? So having, you know, having this being another example of we are at the knee of an exponential curve. That means like we're just starting to see the increase on all of these technologies that are going exponential. And so it's important for us to call these things out in advance uh, because that curve is going to get completely and totally mental way faster than people are able to really comprehend thinking in a linear way. I agree with that. The only uh, sort of qualification I would make is that I don't think automation is, is uh, one of the big factors even. It's definitely a, a factor, but I wouldn't say it's, it's and it's probably a, a big factor, but it's not one of the biggest factors and, and it's kind of like there's so many other factors that are connected to those exponentials yeah. and then there's the factors that are outside of the exponentials things like ideology right mm -hmm. the story that we tell ourselves makes us reject or embrace the facts right mm -hmm. so people on the left or people on the right have a story and when they see a fact that sort of agrees with their story, they embrace it. When they see a fact that doesn't agree, they reject it, right? So you have to go underneath the facts and go to that core story about right and wrong, about good and evil, about uh -huh. good and bad, about what should and shouldn't be, 
if you want to be able to incorporate the facts. So yeah. getting the narrative right and, and getting that sort of framework within which all those facts take on yeah. values of right and wrong is more important and it's kind of the, the prerequisite, right? Because if you don't have a common framework, then you cannot agree about what's right and wrong, what's a useful or not useful fact, and whether something should be or shouldn't be taken into consideration. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that's part of the reason that Yang is doing so well. Um, he, he's doing well because, in part because he's actually able to speak a narrative his, he has a narrative, and yeah. it's a narrative that actually speaks to both sides of the political divide right now. Um, however, for that same reason, um, hyper-partisans in both parties are going, to, are going to push back on him extra hard. Because if you're a hyper-partisan who is, who is committed to the narrative that, um, you know, that, that only, only the Democratic Party as like, which, which by the way, doesn't include Yang if you're a hyper-partisan. If you're a hyper-partisan who thinks that only like establishment loyalist Dems can ever have the right narrative, you're going to push back against that. And if you're somebody who thinks only a Republican, blah, 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 you're going to push back against that. So hyper-partisans are going to reject anybody who even attempts to bridge that, the, the, the two narratives that way. But Yang is doing it. And that's what we need to do in order to get, get our country to like kind of recenter itself on sanity. Exactly. But we, sorry, we're, thing. we've got a, uh, and I almost want to clip that, you know, clip that to clip out what you were saying as far as the, the ideology and the narrative, uh, Nicola, because uh, we're releasing a, a, an episode on on uh, values and principles that uh, that we've did. Because, I mean, this is part of the experiment of having a progressive and a conservative uh, doing a podcast, right? We spend the vast majority of our time agreeing about the 150 policies that we're covering uh, on, uh, you know, in the, in the in Yang's platform, which is really fun. But we find like a lot of ways... And a lot of it is around language, like just speaking different, uh, uh, different ways in different sort of uh, ideological silos. Uh, but there, we do actually have some, some, uh, uh, some differences. So we're doing things now to create a structure of, of and just a, a known capacity or, or, or a reference to values and principles that, uh, that we actually share, right? Like we're trying to create this, um, I almost want to call it centrist, but it would freak too many Democrats out on the left. Uh, it also but, uh, freaks out, it's also freaks out Republicans, right? Sure. Because, because people, again, it's, it is, it's this, it's a tribal loyalty. It's a team yeah. sport loyalty. And you can really tell that it is a team sport because I, it blows my mind how many times I talk to Republicans who just, they have failed to recognize that their party doesn't stand up for what it used to stand up for, but is it still called the Republicans, right? It's like, okay, but like if you, if you fire the coach and every single person on your football team and you completely replace it with a whole new, a whole, a new coach and a whole new team, is it still the same team just because it has the same name? Well, if you're, if you're, if your reason for rooting for that team is because of the name or because they're from your town, then yeah, I guess it's the same team, but it's not in any practical sense, the same team, is it? Well, that's the ship of Theseus argument, but, but the, the more important thing is we have to go beyond labels, as I said, and ideologies, right? Results, look at where the results are learn the lessons from how people got those results that you also want to get and then just do that right so so it doesn't matter who got it and that's that's kind of going to to come to the narrative because you guys 
are doing a good thing here, but you do have some disagreements which pop up between cause and effect because sometimes someone mm -hmm. would say this is the effect and the other one would say, no, this is the cause and the other one would say, no, 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 that's the cause and this is the effect. And the reason is because you don't have that framework still or that common goal uh, or that sort of alignment of utility, if you will, or values. And once you get those, then deductively, you can then easier, uh, easily identify cause and effect, right? Mm -hmm. So if you forget the ideologies for a second and whether this comes from the state and therefore it's bad, I mean, <laughs> when it came to, in Finland, the state did all that stuff and it was very good actually, right? So it's not like the state is the, state is the enemy, you're just looking at results, forget the state. And you wanna, do you wanna learn a lesson that you already know, which is to say, I already know the state is bad and can't do this, or do you want to get results, right? Yeah, no, to be clear, I'm not saying the state is bad. I'm just saying that it's a very, 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 very powerful tool. Like it or not, like the, the federal government is enormously powerful. And so I'm just saying we have to use that cautiously. We, have, we can't just willy-nilly throw out huge, like, massive but changes. It's the weakest it's ever been. The possible downsides of them. Yes, and I agree with that, but it's also the weakest it's ever been, and it's also continued, the power of the state is continuously diminishing now, right? And now you have those corporations which are much bigger than states, right? Uh, and so- Right, we well, the, par the problem is corporations are, co are, are controlling the state. So, I mean, in, sure, a way, in, a way, in, a way, in a way, the fact that corporations have outsized influence is directly related to the fact that the state has so much power. <laughs> that's that's again the difference between cause and effect for me it's right. the other way around for me it's not like the state so much power if the state had so much power here's an example why this is not exactly like that right the only places where the state had so much power is in totalitarian states such as Mussolini Hitler Germany and China and those are the only places in the world where the state can come out and stump on any corporation and destroy it overnight including mafia and other organizations like that, right? But when you have a situation in which the state is actively captivated or hijacked by corporations, that's not a sign of strong state, as you just said. It's actually exactly the opposite. It's the state being weak, and those people who obviously have captured the state via lobbying, via political contributions, have the upper hand, therefore the power, therefore, the whole ratio of cause and effect is flipped upside down. So it's not that the state is strong. The state, because when, when Hitler's state was strong, when Mussolini's state was strong, when China's state was strong, they can stamp out any corporation or organization overnight. Or, you know, I, I, I don't think we're actually disagreeing. What, what, I, what I'm saying is that corporations, the reason that, that them having power over the state is, is bad <laughs> is because it's, it's, it's combining all the power is going into one place. It's not decentralized, right? And so when you, when, you've got, when you have a state that has as much influence as it has, and you also allow corporations to take control of the state, then you're, I mean, like, okay, if, the, if corporations had control of the state, but the state was, was weak in the sense that it didn't have any influence over our society, then, then them controlling the state wouldn't actually give them any power. Right. The reason they would not need the state and they the state. would control society directly. Well, right? so, maybe, so, maybe not. 
I mean, yeah. Well, I, if I, the I, point is to keep the companies at bay and to have decentralized sort of power <laughs> dissemination where competition thrives and you have diversity of ideas and, and markets and all that stuff, that means that the only check that stops that is the state because in the, yep. in the absence of state, corporations will become the state. That's why the West Indian corporation was stronger than the state. They had an army bigger than yeah. the British yeah. army. No, I agree with you. You need both and you don't want either of them to get too powerful. The state in principle is designed to control the corporations and to modulate the tension between the haves and the have-nots. That's the whole point of the state. The reason why you have, uh, first it started with Magna Carta, right? and then it eventually became constitutions was because the state, which as Louis XVI said, l'état uh, c'est moi, the state is me at that time, he could basically literally go and do anything he want, kill, rape, pillage, appropriate the property of anyone and do whatever he wanted. He yeah. was the state. And to put check and balances on his state, and it started in England with Magna Carta, where the first time the nobles decided to put some checks and balances and forced the king to sign it in the 1400s. And that's the first time where you have a state which is separate from the king because it also involves the nobles who have legitimate legal power. And eventually that became the constitution with checks and balances. And so the whole purpose of a state is to legitimate the rules of the game, fair play, right? so that you have rules that everyone agrees in, just like in baseball, and the state is the referee, right? Right now what you have is one team, which is one corporation, bribing or owning the referee, so he always judges in their favor. And what you're saying is like, well, that tells me that the referee is too strong and he has too much power. I'm saying no, actually the team that's bribing the referee is at fault here because in principle, the point of having a referee is so that you have fair play. And right, well, I mean, the referee is also play, at fault for taking the bribe, but yeah. Right, but if, if you don't have fair play, that doesn't mean let's get rid of the, of the referee or the, the problem is that with the referee powers, the problem is that the players, the teams who are bribing the, the referee have more power or leverage on him. And so well, that's true, but you, I mean, you also used Hitler and Mussolini as examples of a strong state. So I don't think we necessarily want the state to be well, no, strong either. That, <laughs> you, can, you, can, you can have situations where, where I agree, it basically is just an example of how you're wielding that, that particular power. Like at, right, the, at, the, at the end of the day. Yeah. Well, yeah, if, you give, if you give too case. much power to any one thing, then it's just inevitably going to become corrupt. No, like, but I gave you an extreme case of that just to, to tell you where, so that it's clear that when you have a strong state, they can do anything they want, right? But the point is in a place like the Nordic countries, which are for me like the perfect balance between these two frictions, you can have fair play and you can have a sort of impartial referee of the game and you can have innovation and you can have free healthcare, sort of yeah. free, you know, nominally free, but not really free as we discussed. And you can have business and you can have innovation at the same time. Yep. And you can have a high standard of living and lower crime rate and healthier people with lower cardiovascular disease and lower body weight, lower obesity, and all of those positive spillover effects. Even in a case where 
the standard of living is pretty high and it's not cheap in Stockholm or in Copenhagen. Yeah, no, I, that's, actually, that's actually where Corey and I came down in terms of values and, and our values discussion um, is finding that sweet spot should be our goal, right? It's about finding that sweet spot where the balance of powers are actually working for the best pos possible positive outcomes. And that's, that's, that's where, where the narrative should. comes in because the narrative is the rules of the game. So yeah. let's say, for example, we are the best in basketball, as we know. There is no debate about that as far as I'm concerned, right? But maybe you would say, well, uh, what is it? The Warriors are better than the Raptors. And I would say, no, that's bullshit. The Raptors are better than the Warriors. And we would disagree on that until the end of the world. But we both agree that the rules of the game are the rules of the game. And within those rules, we judge who is better. And we know. We show. Yeah, we that's a good point. That's, that's, that's part of the reason the U.S. is in such dire straits right now. Is exactly. That's they, why I'm they, talking they about narrative. On the rules of the game. Narr and that's the narrative, right? So you can have people who hate their guts, and of course, Toronto and California don't, but let's say you have the World Soccer Cup, and you have people from South America, North America, the Middle East, Japan and Africa, all playing together. And you know, you can have even Arabs and Israelis, or you know, Pakistani and Indians playing cricket against each other and hating each other's guts or whatever, it doesn't matter. But the point is when they play cricket or when they play soccer, they play within the rules of the game. So they disagree who is better and who should win, but they agree on the rules which determine the winners and the losers. And that's the narrative. So you need the same kind of political narrative yeah. within which innovation, fairness, justice, technological unemployment uh, or optimization and universal basic income all fit. Right. And that's yeah. what's still lacking, in my opinion, in the American political spectrum. And I admit, I don't yeah. know that much about Andrew Yang, but that's why like we're here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, that's exactly that's exactly it. That's 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 why that's why, you know, it, it's so fascinating to me that that, you know, coming from a different perspective, Rio found the same uh, person and for a lot of the same reasons that, that I did. And this really this whole arc, the moving forward podcast as a thing that we're going to do, whether Andrew Yang wins or not, is really about going to those core values that that, that we agree on. Because honestly, like we just fucking have to save America. God damn it. Let's just. Yeah. Well, the, I mean, unfortunately, that is one of a handful of talents that Trump has is he's very good at controlling the narrative. Um, and, and that's where I gave him credit. And, yeah. and he's not Nailed as it. dumb as he looks, at least in that you know, sense. I, 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 I tend to agree with you. I think that he's, he's um, how do I put this? He's like, a, he's like a, an idiot savant or something like that, right? Like he's when media it, savvy. He doesn't read. Um, he doesn't know anything about history. He doesn't understand political science, but he does have this natural talent for controlling the narrative. He's very, very good at manipulating the lowest common denominator. And that, that part of the reason he gets away with it is because the average person is stupid enough to fall for it, yeah. but he's very good at it. Yeah, but he's media savvy and he's a pleaser, which is to say, if he gets in a room with 10,000 people, he wants to tell them a story that makes them feel better about themselves and yes. better about their prospects of the future. You know, whether it's true or false story, it doesn't matter to him. Yeah. He wants to please them. And, you know, he did that in Rochester. And as I told you, 90% of my wife's family voted for him. And now vehemently, like, he can, <laughs> he can do no wrong. Yeah. Much. 
that's the tribalism gone gone completely crazy it's it's funny it's almost like trump is a youtube algorithm well i mean yeah so basically what he did is and you got to the heart the heart of this it he told them what they wanted to hear and so if you tell somebody what they want to hear they're going to believe it. They're not going to bother to check whether it's true or not because it makes them feel good about themselves to believe it. Yep. They don't, nobody wants to hear, hey, maybe you should have gotten an education or maybe you should have seen, seen it coming. But like your town's businesses, like, you know, economists knew it was coming. You could, have, you could have predicted the fact that this town was going to go downhill. Maybe you should have sold your house while properties were still high and gone into a different line of work. Nobody wants to hear that. What they want to hear is, oh, you're a poor, hapless victim and everything in the world is the fault of someone else. So they, they just believed it. One well, of the and then they believed it. Sorry, go ahead. One of the great, uh, well, one of the American leaders, political leaders in the past, um, and it doesn't matter who, but said that leadership is about taking a group of people in a direction towards which they would not naturally be inclined, inclined to go to. Right? This is what leadership is all about. It's not about giving people what they want. Right. It's about oh, I see what you're saying. Him. So you're saying Trump is good at manipulating people, but he's not really a leader. He's just kind of like taking advantage of their anxiety and profiting himself, but he's not really leading anybody because he's exactly. just sort of... That's populism. Yeah. Populism is about giving people what they want and making everything stupid, simple, and black and white. But the oh, you just made simple. me so happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. Of, that's a yeah. really good point. The populist really is the one, he's just feeding the, the rage of the mob. He's not actually leading anybody toward anything constructive. And that's why leadership involves, you know, taking people in a direction in which they were not be naturally inclined to go because sometimes you have to pay, tell people stuff they don't want to hear necessarily. And yeah. you have to have the guts to say that and you have to have the courage to put it forward. And despite opposition, which inevitably you would see, yep. push through, not because it's the easy thing or the popular thing, but because it's the right thing to, to go to do. And that's how progress happens in every society throughout history. In every yep. case, there's resistance. And uh, leadership is, is all about that. 100%. When, uh, and this is, you know, we, uh, we talk a lot about, you know, Bernie sometimes can sound like a populist, uh, but the reason we're all talking about uh, Medicare for all is because he led on that issue and drove it into uh, into the Overton window. Uh, one of the things that and Yang with UBI, honestly, is, is much earlier than I thought it was actually going to come. And it is inevitable. It's something that we're going to have to do uh, for, for a lot of different reasons. But in the in the last debate, they asked him about climate change. And instead of being placating and saying, oh, it's all going to be fine. We're all going to freaking deal with it. He said, no, we're actually going to have to start moving away from the coasts. And everyone lost their fucking minds. Yeah, no, Yang is definitely not a populist. Um, <laughs> Sanders, it's not, it's not his support of Medicare for all that makes me call him a populist. It's the, no, way that he, it's the way that he tells people the same thing Trump tells them. He tells them that all your problems are someone else's fault. You don't have any personal responsibility. I'm going to fix it all for you. That's, uh, that's, that's the issue. But now here, here's the thing about Medicare for all I was going to push back on a little bit. Again, Hillary Clinton supported that in the 90s. Okay, so it's not it's not that Sanders pushed it through into the Overton window. It's that he has been supporting that policy because he's an independent and because he had he, he's in a, a, a very blue state where he could just rely on just kind of getting reelected over and over and over again. He was able to just stand by the, the popular popular opinion moved away from Medicare for all. And both parties moved right. And then he just happened to be standing there at the moment when popular opinion started moving left on him again. 
I fundamentally disagree. Uh, they, the, the, anyway, honestly, it doesn't, doesn't matter. Cause he's not going to, well, no, he, like he, he didn't, I mean, he was, he was, he was telling everybody to support that policy the whole time. The so only like, reason that Americans, he, all of a sudden Americans decided they wanted it. Cause he kept talking about it until it actually happened I'm in a time saying, well, when the ACA wasn't working. And like, they basically tried to do a whole bunch of Republican ideas under a democratic uh, 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 president and it's not working. Everyone's super shocked, right? Like, yes, this idea is for medical reasons every year in the United States. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing, like, however, however we come to that, what Nicola just said is the, the, the thing we're trying to solve, right? At the end of the right, day. No, but what I'm saying is it's not, it's not like, it's not like Hillary Clinton didn't try to push through Medicare for all when she was first lady. She did. She failed because the American people didn't want it at the time and now they want it but that's where a lack of leadership comes to play again because if you're a good leader you know they would have asked me for a faster horse as henry ford said right but he didn't build a faster horse because he was a leader and didn't give people what they wanted to get i mean steve jobs would have never built the iphone if if he just did what people asked him to do or expected him to do right he did what he thought whether you agree with it or not yeah. He did what he thought was the right thing to do. Yeah, and no, I, I, I agree. Position. Yeah, yeah, I don't think anybody would deny that. Hillary Clinton was, was not a particularly good leader either. I, I, I'm, just, I'm just saying that like, the, the, there, it's like you can't just give one man personal responsibility for the fact that, um, that public opinion just shifted. There's a lot of reasons why public opinion shifted. It's not just because of Bernie Sanders. But you have no, to I, I never would have said it's just because. But yeah, I just, I just think, you know, if, for any one single person, he deserves a lot of credit for that. Sure. Um, and and that's, that's really it. But at the end of the day, I think to, to the leadership point, you know, and that has been percolating in American politics for, for 30 years. You're totally right about that, right? And, and the, the damage that the current system is causing is ramping up over time, and they tried something that didn't work, and so it's ramping up even more. So yeah, there is a hunger for that. Um, and would, he, you know, he was espousing the thing that has become the most popular alternative to what's and, going on right he now. Became, he, he lost the primary because um, he got the votes of millennials, but he didn't get the votes of older people. And older people vote in larger numbers. He also didn't get the votes of, of of anybody who wasn't white for the most part but so here's 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 the thing and also there um, was some oh, wait, subversive wait. you know actions within the democratic party in support of hillary and against him and all that stuff but right right no i agree but i'm just saying i'm just saying that like if you look at the if you look at the uh the, the way that the that the, the statistics actually broke down he only got 25 percent of the votes of non-whites in a party where non-whites make up over 40 percent of the electorate Right. And he didn't get the votes of older people. And so here's the thing. Millennials, especially younger millennials, came of age during the recession. Okay, they're overeducated and underpaid. And of course, they're going to want social democracy. They're going to want more policies with higher taxation and And better benefits. They're not the ones paying the taxes. And they need the benefits, right? So his message appealed to, just happened to appeal to the new generation because of the economic anxiety that that, he, he, he was taking advantage of the economic anxiety of that generation. Well, I, anyway, I, I think that's not giving the man enough credit because he was courageous to be different in a time when different was kind of and call himself even a socialist in a time when that's kind of like political suicide in the United States. <laughs> I'll right? certainly give we're, you credit for that. We're that moving right on past yeah, the yeah, S word because you're right. Agreed about that. That that he is a ballsy fig, for, person for sure. <laughs> okay, this okay. Where I want to take this, I'm just 
on the leadership thing, I think it's really, really important. Again, a thousand dollars a month freedom dividend, universal basic income was not on anyone's radar. And now everyone's talking about it. It, like to me that that is absolutely you know you look at everybody who's 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 in the political spectrum from fucking orange mcgee to you know everybody in the democratic party that that are talking about little you know they're basically talking about things that are very safe and very like ideas we've all talked about or before none of them are good enough right and then somebody comes along with the the, the policy prescription that is basically the totality of all the best ideas that honestly are are, are doing exactly that you can tell you read uh, uh andrew yang's book he literally is taking all of his ideas ideas from all of the countries that are doing better than we are like that that's just a, 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 a universal actually, theory of the case he's actually doing even better than that because he's proposing things that other places aren't doing yet right I, you know it, it, the, the downside of, of saying we want to be more like denmark is that you know it nothing's perfect anywhere there are pros and cons all over the place right there are problems in denmark feeling to- something rotten in denmark as shakespeare said <laughs> <laughs> well played. Um, that, by the way, we have to start wrapping up because uh, we've, we 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 need. I need uh, time to refill my coffee before we, we do our next uh, recording session. But thank you so much uh, for coming on, Nick. Like, um, um, is there anything you want to say before you know to our listeners? To send them to your YouTube channel. What anything you want to tell everybody? Well, everyone can find me easily if you just uh, go to singularity.fm or singularity.info. But I just want to say that it's it's a great thing that you two guys are, are going together. It's funny to watch you two kind of uh, uh, sort of co-host this and, and, and address each other. But at the same time, one thing that you're very clearly agreed upon is, is Andrew Yang. And so I'm happy to see that. And if you two can bridge that divide between, you know, sort of progressives and conservatives or Republicans and Democrats or whatever, that that's a great sign and and i just want to give you another example of that my mother-in-law is american uh hardcore republican george w bush walter and trump walter um and we love each other dearly and we have an absolutely fantastic relationship even though we argue almost constantly about donald trump but we do and and and, and the best part is like we even go to watch movies together like my father-in-law is busy, my wife is busy, and I just go with my mother-in-law and we watch a movie. And so next month we're going to, for example, to watch the new Errol Morris movie about Bannon. And I, I can imagine uh, what kind of discussions that's going to lead Dude, to. I pictured you going to like Toy Story, Toy Story 2 or something like that. No, 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 no. We're going to go watch a movie about Steve Bannon. Well, that's more the exception though, because yeah. the next movie we're going to watch is like Ford against Ferrari. Uh, because uh, which is coming just two weeks afterwards with Matt Damon and and uh, what is it Christian Bale? Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, because my mother-in-law is American, but she's also Italian, so that kind of Ford versus Ferrari, <laughs> and also 1960s kind of thing is like very much up her alley because that's well, like yeah. The 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 Bush Trump thing is is fascinating too because. I mean, really, Hillary Clinton is more like George Bush than Donald Trump is like George Bush. But that's because, 100%. as you said, she's loyal to Republicans, right? And Trump yeah. ran as a Republican. Never mind the fact that he was, you know, anathema to everything the Republican Party stood for. Um, he was but a Republican. The major point was that bridges are possible. You guys are a great example of that. I have Thank one, you. perhaps even bigger bridge in my own family and let me tell you it wasn't easy yeah the first time i sat on the family uh, table at christmas 15 years ago they put me next to my wife's aunt from ohio 
and she asked me if I'm a Catholic and I decided for once in my life to be diplomatic. So I told her, I you know I'm more of an agnostic to which she coldly told me, I'm, you're going to burn in hell. Yeah. So that yeah. was kind of, yeah, that's now, a pretty big divide. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And you know how I bridged that divide with the aunt and uncle in Ohio? We went to visit them and they took me shooting and they saw my target and they're like, that's the first time her aunt came to hug me. <laughs> <laughs> you might be going awesome. to hell, but at least you're, 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 you're going to take a good shot with you. Uh, yeah. Nicholas, and I, thank you so much for, for joining us. I think, I think you, you nailed what, what the mission here is and it isn't always easy and it isn't, you know, uh, always perfect, but that's absolutely the goal. Uh, and, and it's something that we're both excited about. Yeah. I mean, we're just going to keep doing it until, until it's, until it's perfected. We want, yeah, you might, you might say Andrew, an Yang example, you might say Andrew Yang is our taco. That, that is, <laughs> we say that at the end of every show, uh, for reasons that get fuzzier every time. <laughs> Thank you very much, guy, guys. Uh, you're doing a great job. So keep it up and keep building those bridges because you know, the future is, is, the future is created by building bridges, not by building walls. Preach. So you, you're building a bridge on this show and you need a lot more bridges in your whole country to push it forward. And, and so don't give up on it. Thanks, man. Absolutely. All right. Thank you very much for listening to the Moving Forward podcast. Uh, we are so excited to be bringing this to you, and we're so excited about the uh, the awesome community, the Yang Gang that's grown up around the candidacy uh, of Andrew Yang. Uh, if you could please tag us on Twitter with the hashtag Moving Forward Pod and uh, find and join the Moving Forward podcast uh, group on Facebook. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.